Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, ready or not, here we are in Luke chapter 22, and we jump right into this uh, preparing of the Passover as well as uh, concepts on the Lord's Supper, which of course intrigue me greatly. So uh, starting at the beginning, what stands out to you, sir? Well, I think the uh, Passover story and the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all those things seems to be pretty fitting for this story of what ends up being the passion of the Christ, as most people will know it, and for this Hebrew feast that commemorated a deliverance of Israel. And and uh, my, this, this is rich with meaning from the Old Testament, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some uh, uh, digging into those scriptures to really understand much of what's being talked about here, to understand all the feasts and all of the language that Absolutely. Jesus uses. So if we're setting ourselves in the context of this story, verse 1 tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, um, which is called Passover, was approaching, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread happens um, around the middle of March, mm-hmm. according to Jewish tradition. Uh, it is in the month called Nisan, and it is from the 15th to the 21st, and this is a, this is a seven-day uh, celebration. It is very, very important, this mm-hmm. uh, particular celebration. So that Feast of Unleavened Bread, calling it the Passover, was approaching, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. What I find so intriguing about these stories, when it comes to the um, to the evil intentions of these uh, Jewish leaders' hearts, is nothing is sacred when they want somebody gone. I mean, we're dealing with a very important Passover feast approaching, and all they can think about is killing this guy. It's just unbelievable. It is a, it's a plot that, that it really defies much of what you see in fiction or in, in real life story, which this was, but it is a plot that is, that is quite amazing because it just gets deeper and more complex as you read. And, and, uh, and this is happening at, uh, at the time of what should be one of the most sacred times for the people of Israel. This is this is a this is a, a festival, a time of thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God for all that He had done for them. I mean, they the, some of the some of the things that they did there were very uh, celebratory. Uh, and they did some things that were really, really interesting, which were going through their, they would go take brooms and go through their houses and make sure that they, there was no leaven in the house. And they kind of used it as a, just kind of a, a uh, celebration of understanding what the Passover was all about. But then in the contrast, in the back of their minds, they had death on their mind. Yes. Killing yes. Jesus. You have, you have God. Uh, moving in one of the most amazing ways in the Passover to redeem 
his people, to save his people, and then to lead them out of their bondage in Egypt. And yet the chief priests are only concerned with uh, thinking, quite honestly, like Egyptians, wanting to see somebody dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, what a powerful thing. Um, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, and Passover are interesting things because this kind of uh, festival had changed over time. And what I just shared with you about the about the times and the dates of that, those were the ways that this was celebrated by the time of the New Testament. Um, they, things had been changed over time on what was really, uh, really done. For example, Passover was actually just a one-day feast at one point mm-hmm. in time, but then it became uh, all-encompassing inside of this. So the chief priests and the scribes, they're seeking how they can put him to death, uh, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. What a what a line right there. Wow. You can't just read that and move on. Oh my um, gosh. This is a this is a chosen by Jesus's invitation, a chosen apostle of Jesus. Yeah. And what do we see here? This really strange yes. situation. There uh, you know it it we never want to forget that we have an enemy and and uh, so, but I, I and and I I I want to I want to go back just for a second to verse two, and it's it is amazing what what seems to be a big part of this as the the desire of the chief priests and the scribes. These are the these are people that are ruled by the Sanhedrin. These are guys that that the Sanhedrin has complete control of, and uh, they uh, they wanted to catch Jesus. They wanted to get to him, and they wanted to have him killed, but they didn't want to do it. They were they were afraid of the crowds of people. He we you know we noted in the last few uh, podcasts that that the crowds were coming near him in the temple every day. Now large large crowds. These weren't just a few people. These were a bunch of people that were coming, and he was teaching, and many of them clearly said, "Hey, we think he's a prophet." So the the scribes. And the high priests and all of them were wanting to move against him. They wanted to wanted to take him, but they were too afraid because of because of his popularity. Now, it, it seems to me it, it it is so telling that these chief priests and these scribes they feared these people. They didn't fear God. No, they they did not have any fear. They didn't even ask God, "Is this is this the Messiah?" They didn't. They they weren't afraid to kill the Son of God. Yeah, and there have been so many signs up to this point that have proved who He is or shown who He's claiming to be. Especially this triumphal entry piece that we talked about just a, a few podcasts ago. It's it's amazing that that's their heart. That they they have death on their mind, especially as we just referred to. Uh, when we're thinking about a festival, when we're thinking about a celebration of God's saving work of Israel uh, from from judgment, so what a powerful thing! So, uh, with this, with these people breathing out threats of death and and them wanting Jesus dead, now we have Satan entering into one of the twelve. 
Uh, and uh, he, you know, Luke makes it a point to stress both of the things that I just stressed. Satan entered into Judas, and he belonged to the number of the 12. There's something very interesting about this. Now, it brings up that uh, age-old question that says, can Christians, can Christians, uh, become demon possessed, right? It it specifically says that Satan entered into Judas. Mm-hmm. It does not say that Satan oppressed Judas or anything like that. The only thing that I would uh, I would say in that is number one, I don't believe that anything can separate us from the love of God, and I I believe that Satan is a part of that. Um, I don't believe that a Christian can be demon possessed, but I would challenge everybody to understand where we are in the story of redemptive history. Jesus has not gone to the cross. The idea of being born again has not happened yet. There's there's something in all of that that at least has to be uh, brought to bear in the conversation about what happens to Judas. But here's what we do know is that Judas seems willing to go along with this plan. Judas yes. was Judas was not um, not always on the right side of things. So yeah, exactly. Just because there. we read that Satan entered into Judas, it it. it this is this is gonna this is gonna take some thinking through and talking through, but we we can't read into that that Judas did not have a responsibility or that he had no responsibility Amen. or he was he we we cannot that doesn't diminish the personal responsibility that Judas had because uh, none of this was done against his will, so it it it. it in one sense, in one sense now, and, and this is going to take some thinking through, and I may say some things that may may uh, throw you off a little bit if you're thinking this through. But this, first of all, this shows that that the real enemy of Jesus was Satan. Now, even more so than Judas. Now, now, hear hear me out about this. Many people <laughs> wonder about the motives of Judas, and there's so many. Uh, uh, that that will conjecture, conjecture about what what those motives were, and uh, mostly greed, mostly wanting to be uh, I, I, ha- having power and authority. I, I I don't know what all that is, but the fact remains is that this was this had been prophesied, yes. and 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 Judas was playing a part in that prophecy willingly. Now now don't. Don't don't miss the fact that he willingly did it. He didn't. Satan didn't force him to do something against his will. Yeah, and I think the important uh, the important argument that is made to prove that is when later it says, you know, this this one would it would have been better for him not to have been born. Mm. Why, if it wasn't his fault? Why, if he didn't play a part in it, if this was orchestrated, if this was always to be the case, then then why is he held accountable to anything? And that gets to that age-old question of uh, questions on determinism. If if God is determining all things that come to pass, as some believe, um, 
then Judas can't be held liable for anything, right? Judas Judas needs to to be let go, and he's free, and he's done this. Uh, this also is debunked by ideas we see in the Old Testament, where God uh, says in Jeremiah that some of the things that Israel did never entered His mind. There are things that come to pass that God did not ordain, <laughs> right? Not only that God didn't ordain, God didn't even think them through because they're so wicked or they're so broken. So, so Judas is willfully going along with this. And yet we still have this challenging language that the devil has entered into one belonging to the number of the 12. I remember uh, in Acts chapter 5, when we hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right, and they had lied to the Holy Spirit um, in, in a particular uh, situation that they were they were dealing with, and and they were judged for it. They were killed. Um, and by the way, that was New Testament. This is after the cross. This is after uh, Pentecost. This is this is totally church age mm-hmm. kind of things. But sounds real Old Testament to people. But it's New Testament. But it says in Acts five three that Peter said to Ananias, he said, "Why has Satan filled?" your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. It could be that the language here is simply referring to the same way that it refers to Ananias. Ananias was known to be a believer. He lied to the Holy Spirit that was apparently in him that he could lie to. I know I've heard many stories, many uh, arguments about this that say Ananias and Sapphira were never saved to begin with and all of this stuff. Those are, those are, things you can't prove, right? But what we can prove is that this could be a figure of speech. Uh, We just have to study the language a bit, but it could be a figure of speech that says, why has Satan filled your heart? The same notion for when Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's not, he's not literally Satan. There's not literally a demonic possession here, but there is a giving over to an enemy's plan. Again, all of that coincides with Judas having a will, Judas choosing to do this, and then Judas being held accountable for it. So whatever we're looking at here, Judas screwed up. (laughs) Judas made a big mistake and it, and it, all of this had to come about, but Judas is, is culpable for his actions. Exactly right. And it's so, it's so hard for us to fathom exactly what it was because this was prophesied. We know that it was, but then, but then the enemy through Judas, turns over to these uh, uh, chief priests and the scribes. He gives them a gift. They Now, we read in Matthew 26, and, and now get this. I, I love this plot. How the, we, we read in Matthew 26 that the chief priests and scribes, actually, they, they wanted to make sure that they did all of that. They wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill him secretly. They did not want to cause a riot. They knew that the Romans would squelch that immediately, and, and they might get involved in that. So they didn't want, because of their fear of the people and their fear of the Romans. However, Judas goes to them and gives them a gift and says, hey, I can, I can turn him over to you. So then they decide, this is it. Yeah. We're, gonna, we're not going to wait till after the Passover. That was their intent, to wait till after all these people had cleared out yeah. because the likelihood of a riot at that time was great because there were thousands upon thousands of people 
following Jesus, and they did not want to start, to start a riot that was going to kill their whole plan. Yes, absolutely. So verse 4 goes on and says, And he, Judas, went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Now, we're going to see Judas's remorse in another, uh, in another instance, mm-hmm. but the point still remains that he does this. He goes, he betrays him. Uh, verse 5, They were glad and agreed to give him money. <laughs> they were they were readily available. Why is that the case? Well, verse two is very clear for us. They wanted to put him to death. I mean, they they were they had a bloodlust. They wanted Jesus gone, and Judas comes and kind of serves it up on a silver platter, right? He absolutely does. So so verse five, they were glad and agreed to give him money. Verse six, so he consented. Right, So we've got his consent here. He consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Now that line right there confirms another point of what you just made. This, this uh, betraying him apart from the crowd was important because even what we see when, when Judas does betray him, uh, there's defense yeah. of Jesus. There is a coming to his defense, but if it's in the crowd, this ain't happening. Because these people love him. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people are following after him uh, with their whole hearts. So you, you, one would think that it, this uh, that <laughs> Satan uh, is 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 inciting something here that is certainly the plan of God. And you would think now, and 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 this uh, this goes really really deep into what we know about about the enemy, you, you, you would think that he would have known, but we, we understand that Satan is not like God in the sense, Satan is not all knowing. Uh, maybe he, maybe he didn't have an understanding. I think if you think about this and it takes a little bit of twisting your head into it sometimes, but Satan isn't all wise he, right. he, I, I think he, if he, even if he did know, and, and I'm just, we're just going to throw this out there because I, I, I think it's interesting. Even if he did know that the death of Jesus would, was going to, as the scripture says, crush his head, it seems, yeah, and, uh, and we're open for this, open for talks on this, but it seems that his hatred got the best of him. Since Satan is the great de- deceiver, he he has, he is no doubt trying to deceive. He's kind of, but he has absolutely deceived himself. And he, he, uh, there may be a thought in his head that he can actually win if he gets yeah. rid of Jesus. It, it, it very much could be. What we do know about the difference between Satan, who is a created being and he is an angelic being, um, we do know that he may have unique attributes that separate the angels from human beings, those of us human beings which are created, we are said to be created, all human beings are said to be created in the image of God. Angels don't have that identifier. Um, But what is really interesting is that unlike God, uh, the devil's anger and the devil's reactions are uncontrolled, mm-hmm. right? If, if God is angry, one thing that is really important for us to understand, if God is angry, God is controlled in his anger. God doesn't fly off the handle. Every 
moment that God moves, even when he is very angry in, in the Old Testament stories, uh, in several Old Testament stories, God's anger is still controlled. It is still righteous. It is still holy. It is still just. It is perfect in all those ways. The devil seems to get blinded by these things. Mm-hmm. And he gets blinded by his own strange ambition. Whether that ambition is he actually thinks he can win, I don't know. But what we do know is he doesn't, even if the devil only knows that he loses, He's going to try to take as many people down with Absolutely. him as possible. So, so that's it. But, but I like your thought. I like the 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 train the train of thought that we could go on that because, what does the devil think he's going to accomplish by getting Jesus crucified? What what does he think mm-hmm. he's going to accomplish? Mm-hmm. In many ways, it could be that the devil is so unaware of the plan. He doesn't even recognize that Jesus going to the cross is God's intention, which is kind of to your point, mm-hmm. right? What an interesting uh, way of reading that. Yeah, so. if we if we look at this and really uh, and have to understand and, and that, as you've well said, that gives it a lot of meaning to it because there the, he does not know what God knows. He does not have the same attributes as God, and we, uh, you know, oftentimes we think that that uh, Satan is very similar to God, and that's just not so. It's yes. untrue in, in millions of ways yeah. that we don't, some that we don't even know about. That's, uh, I, I like that because as we talk about just practical Christian living, you will hear people say all the time, uh, just, you just tell the devil to leave. He's not omnipresent, people. Mm. The right. devil is probably not hanging around you. Now, his minions, there is principality, there is darkness, there is there is a genuine spiritual battle that is happening, right, that we don't see. But this idea that for in some way we're resisting the devil like as in the actual person, uh, what we're resisting is the is the enemy of God or the enemies of God and what they're trying to bring about. The devil is not omnipresent. The dem- devil is not omniscient. The devil can't even hear you. <laughs> you could yell at him all day long. Unless he's in your vicinity, what do you think you're accomplishing, right? Mm-hmm. This is, we, we very quickly apply all of God's attributes to every supernatural yeah. or yeah. angelic being. Just simply not the case. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's simply not the case. And so, so sometimes I find it, I find it um, sad, actually, that people will sit and contend with the devil when, if we're talking about Lucifer, if we're talking about this one, he's probably nowhere near you mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? So just an interesting and, thought. And I like, in, in verse 6, I, I like that, that it talks about Judas consented, to, they agreed on an amount of money. Yep. Uh, they, were, they, they were glad, the chief priests and the scribes were glad. And, be, and it says in verse 6, so he con- consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him apart from the crowd, as you've said. Now, it's so very notable that's God, that God is going to take the wicked works of Judas that have been, uh, that have been helped along absolutely by Satan and were his plan to, to, to start with, but 
to further God's eternal plan. Without doubt. This is this is the crazy piece that people don't get sometimes. Yeah. So in Scripture, when it tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, uh, we tend to read that through the lens of, if God is going to work it all together for our good— we reinterpret that as God's going to work good things for our good. No, not necessarily. He's going to work all of the components that are moving, all of the moving parts. He's going to orchestrate them for our good. Think about this. Not only does he use Judas's betrayal, he uses the sacrifice of his own son, which he in, he planned, right? That This was all part of this for our redemption. God working all things together for our good often comes through some very bad situations, right? You can go through uh, heavy loss in your life and God bring about good in it. Nothing in scripture says that God's going to work things together for your good by using only good things. <laughs> mm-hmm. He uses often adverse, bad, frustrating, horrible things. He uses them because we live in a sinful world but he uses them for our betterment. And this is one of those situations. We have the betrayal of a friend, by the way, at a kiss, which is a, such a real strange thing. Remember in the new, you yes. know, in the new Testament that we're, we're to be, uh, we have this kind of holy kiss or this bond of love that we have with each other. And Judas in a loving, in a loving expression betrays his Lord. What a, what a contradiction. Wow in his actions. So verse seven goes on and we're dealing with the first day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, this is a very interesting thing. And I just want to read a piece of commentary to you uh, for your own personal study. Comments on uh, 22.1 also are like this in this commentary, but Luke followed Mark 14.12 at this point. So Mark 14.12 would say this. It says, um, uh, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? At this point... uh, Luke is copying Mark, and here's what the commentary says. At this point, and gave a popular, although inexact, dating of the Passover. This is an inexact dating of the Passover. A similar example would be for those who celebrate Christmas, and they begin on Christmas Eve rather than Christmas morning by saying, we're going to celebrate Christmas. Well, Christmas Day is officially December 25th to us. So this is kind of how this is inexact. So he goes in and he, uh, the commentary goes in and compares this with Josephus's writings. Uh, and it says, for the same dating of the Passover, Matthew 26, 17 omits the reference to the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. So there are many people who argue about this and say, see, here's more problems. We're going we're gonna to show that there's problems in the Bible. Nope, that's not what was intended to be communicated here. And we know that because Mark does the same thing. It was, it was common, even in Josephus's writings, to kind of give a general idea of what we were dealing with. But it's not exact. Yeah. If we, if we, if we don't go back and study that, it's going to seem odd to us because yes. the, the days won't line up, as you said. So that's a, that's, that's a, that's a great point and one that would, would take some more uh, study. Way more to time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it looks like in, in, the, in uh, 
this was the uh, uh, verse number seven. Then then came the first day of the unleavened bread. Uh, this this had to be from the standpoint of Jesus looking at this. This what a commemoration of what was the feast of unleavened bread for him. He's looking at this from a totally different standpoint. That Passover was the was the memorial of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And now Jesus is going to provide a brand new understanding yes. of what this all means. And I and especially this ceremonial meal that that we're going what a different view of that. Yeah, very that, much. That we have because of what Jesus did. Very much. So verse 8, Jesus sends Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he says to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, we remember a couple of weeks back on the podcast, we talked about the fact that Jesus could have orchestrated, when it comes to the triumphal entry, the donkey that he was supposed to go and he was supposed to get. This one becomes far more complicated to prepare in advance, and here's why. It says when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Well, unless that was a, and this is possible, unless that was a common greeting that was supposed to take place at that particular thing, that's a pretty strange situation to have that guy, hey, he happens to be walking on the road carrying a pitcher, and he's going to, that's going to be who you need to uh, talk to about the house we're going to meet at. This actually seems to echo this kind of Old Testament story of, of when we're finding a wife for, um, I believe it's for Isaac or, or, or for Jacob. You know, the, the idea here is we're finding a wife and, and it is go here and the one who waters your camels, that's the one who, you know, and offers to water, and offers to give you water. There you go. You know who this is. This seems to be that kind of prophetic foreknowledge that seems to be going here. I don't know. It's just a, it's an interesting situation that seems harder to plan. Yeah, it certainly does. And, and there are plenty of scholars who have all kinds of ideas about this. S- some, to me, don't just make no sense whatsoever. I, there are things that are read that says that a, that a man carrying a pitcher of water would have been unusual. But wait a minute, there were there, there were thousands upon thousands of people walking around. You mean there's no, right. there's one guy in the whole city carrying a, I, I think that's right. probably far-fetched. Right. But so the other piece of this that is that, that I, I think that uh, there are, uh, there are some that, that believe that Jesus was being somewhat discreet about the details of where this was going to be held and I, I, we, we can. This is only conjecture that he is saying that he didn't want Judas to know exactly how this was going to happen because he was afraid that 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 they would arrest him at the in the middle of this 
supper, this last supper celebration. I never, I never read that. That's interesting. I, I love these theories. Again, as we just said, most are speculative at best, right? We just, we just have to kind of, exactly. kind of tease that stuff out. So it's a very, very fun story. But nonetheless. Nonetheless, there is a large furnished upper room that is going to be prepared, uh, and they are to prepare this Passover meal there. So verse 14, we roll into this, and I believe that this is such a beautiful thing because everything that we understand about communion— even though we have New Testament references such as Corinthians and, 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 and differing things that, that refer to what was accomplished in the bread and the wine and, and understanding is Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us, understanding those things, this is where we get the idea. And what I find so fascinating is coming to the conclusion that we should have a loaf of bread and a small cup uh, separated from a meal on a Sunday morning, uh, kind of taken in uh, isolation from the rest of the body as as individuals, is is honestly it is absurd in in where we get this idea from. It's just not in the pages of Scripture. Here's what we do see in the pages of Scripture: When the hour had come, verse fourteen, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And this would include Judas, right? Mm -hmm. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, what is the dinner meal that they're celebrating here? It's Passover. Mm -hmm. And there is a ton of symbolism in Passover, including uh, a blessing for washing hands, a blessing over the cups, four different cups to be drank, uh, a blessing over bread, a blessing over different types of bread, a bread that was set apart in the beginning of the meal for, for an end, and all of this symbolism that is here. So when we read these things, we have to keep our minds on the fact that there's a bigger story going on with these acts mm -hmm. that are happening mm -hmm. here. Yeah, th this was a this was a very symbolic gesture that involved many things from the Old Testament, so many things from what well, now let me back up, many things from how things were done in that day, but also Jesus was saying was instituting this and saying first of all this this is going to change how we commune in a communal meal or this Passover or this communion, this is going to change because there's a, there's a new covenant. It wasn't, uh, he, he came to institute, institute this new covenant based on his sacrifice. Yes. So some, some people looked at this and said, uh, oh, this was the beginning of the end because it was signifying that, Hey, I'm, I'm going to the cross. And no, it was kind of the beginning of the beginning. Yes, <laughs> it was starting this new this new covenant, and Jesus was instituting this 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 very uh, while he used many of the procedures of the ceremonial 
uh, washings, and there are four different cups of wine, as you said, and they and there were yeah. t- certain times that they would take a sip from each cup because it each represented something differently. Jesus didn't do away with that necessarily; he just put a new meaning to Absolutely. it and, and started the, and started doing it and for a far different reason. Yeah, and for storytelling purposes, just because it doesn't go into detail of the dinner that they had, we have to remember that there was a sacrifice of a Passover lamb. There was a lamb at some point in this meal, okay? All we see for storytelling purposes is uh, two instances of a wine, a cup of wine that are that are passed around, and one instance of bread being broken. But there is a fuller meal that is taking place. Why? It's Passover. This is not... We can't read history backwards. We can't think of what we do in the modern church and say, well, that's all Jesus did here. It simply wasn't the case, right? So this is very Jewish. This is very clear according to custom. So it says that he he is not going to eat of it. Verse 16 says, I, I say to you, I shall never eat again, again eat it, the Passover meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, here, I love... I love that uh, that statement because it sounds as though God is going to have this meal of remembrance in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that an intriguing idea? It, I'm not going to eat of this again until... That's when I'll eat it again, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. This cup right here, I argue, this cup is not what we see later when he says, uh, verse 20, when he says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This seems to be another cup in the Passover Seder, in the Passover meal, and he passes this cup around and declares he won't drink of it until the new, uh, the kingdom. There, there are many views of this, and I'm anxious to hear what, what you, I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that have, that are, that are out there. You probably know all of these, but this is, there are many people that believe that when he spoke this in verse 18, that he is waiting for all of his people, that Jesus has not yet celebrated the Passover in heaven. And this is now, and so bear with me. These are not my thoughts. I just, <laughs> he said, and, and he, he's waiting for all his people to be gathered to him. So then they roll that into the marriage supper of the lamb. That this is what Jesus was speaking about, that he won't, that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. And he's, he's, he's saying that uh, uh, you had alluded to yesterday about the kingdom of God coming. Uh, he's talking about until the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God includes all of the people of the kingdom. Yes, absolutely. So I, 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 I'm I, anxious I, to hear I your like, thought. I like the wedding supper of the Lamb. I think that those things are very, um, those things are very clear for us in in what we're looking forward to, uh, to connect them with this meal of remembrance. This meal that God is the deliverer uh, is overwhelming to me because that is the story of human history. Mm-hmm. 
but God, right? The story of human history is we have sinned and fall short, but God comes and he redeems. So I, I like the imagery there. I'm not sure I can prove that out by a scripture, but it is it is one of those intriguing things. One thing that we do know is that he, he says that he won't eat of this again until then. But what we don't see clearly is whether or not he partook of the drinking of this particular mm. cup. We don't we don't know that. But um, nonetheless, all of that stuff is very cool to think about what this might mean. That what if Passover is an eternal mm. uh, feast and celebration and a reflection on God's mm-hmm. faithfulness? Mm-hmm. What if that's the case? I, wow. I just think that that would be. Unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. So, I, in in kind of in my head, I I see uh, as I read through this, and I I have to tell you, these are complicated uh, scriptures that are rich in in history from uh, from the from the Jewish law and from the the old the Old Testament uh, practices, but. What we do know about this and how I've kind of come to this, and I'm, I'm not formed my complete thought on this, but Jesus is definitely, he became the Passover lamb. He became the Absolutely. lamb that was slain. And, and, and to ransom people from every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So I, I, it seems that, that when he's talking about this, that that Passover cannot be completely fulfilled in his mind until all those people are reached on the earth and the ransomed are then once at, and this is the end of the age, I think, until they're all gathered and his kingdom is established at the, at the end times. I, 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 it just seems to me to be leading that. And we should be following his example in his in the remembrance of what he did on the cross, yes. no doubt. But I I I have a I'm like you. I have a hard time bringing it to a singular conclusion that it means one thing. I'm not sure it just yeah. means one thing. Yeah, I do think that that what we are participating in the scripture is abundantly clear that we are proclaiming his death until he t- comes again. Um, why does it not say in the scripture that we are proclaiming his death and resurrection until it, until he comes again? Because it's, because it's emphatically stated that the resurrection, without the resurrection uh, and belief in the resurrection, our faith is futile. We, we know that that's foolishness. But what we are proclaiming in Jesus's blood and in, in the wine and in the bread, Jesus's blood and his body, what we're proclaiming is what he went through to purchase our salvation, right? That's mm-hmm, what we're proclaiming. Mm-hmm. That is what is related to his death. His resurrection gives us life. He's the firstborn among the dead. We are, we are to be resurrected. But the idea here is that in this act, we are proclaiming uh, his death until he returns. If it were not for his death on the cross, we don't have redemption. We don't have the forgiveness of our sins. So it's a very important connection. And and the, the fuller meaning, you know, of all of this is still something that we're going to 
have to remain humble about Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. we grow and we look to it. So verse 19, I love that it says, uh, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we get into a lot of discussions on whether or not this is the literal body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, the, uh, or if this is a symbol. Uh, there are two reasons why I believe it to be a symbol. Number one, uh, number one is that this is, this is um, said elsewhere to be, uh, to be reminiscent of, to be like something. This one also is prior to him even going to the cross. How in the world is this bread, his actual body? His body has not been crucified yet. His, he has not died yet. And in this moment, he says, this is my body. Um, the part that the part that leads us to the idea that it's not uh, that it's not physical also is right there. Do this in remembrance of me, not do this because it is me. So that's that is our uh, that is our traditional. Um, well, that is the largely held Protestant view of it. Mm-hmm. Not all Protestants actually hold to that same view, but we can get into that discussion uh, at another time. So he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. That phrase right there, after they had eaten, does not, does not necessarily mean after they had eaten the bread that was just passed around. It seems to also indicate after they had eaten the Passover meal, there was something more going on inside of this. Uh, making a definitive case about that is is only appealing to the fact that this is the Passover meal and not communion as we know it right. in the 21st century. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I love the symbolism that, that it, every piece of the, the actual Passover meal, because Jesus changes the wording of some of these prayers. I loved, I think you had read a couple of the uh, <laughs> Jewish Passover prayers that was, yes. that was, and I, I it, we see the gospel, and, and you've pointed this out many times. We see the gospel even in what the Jews prayed. Listen to what this, when, when they lifted up the, the, the bread the first time at Passover, in, in a Jewish Passover meal, the, the head of the meal would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. So everything that was eaten at the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning. And, and, and Jesus is doing the, the, the same thing. So like the, the bitter herbs recalled the, the bitterness of slavery, the salt uh, water, remember the tears shed under Egypt's all. But the main course, as you've said, was a freshly sacrificed lamb. And it, 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 it was the sin-bearing peace. It didn't represent anything in Egypt. It represented that, that, that the sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over that household. Yes. That's, the, that's, that's what it's talking about. Yeah. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you the same thing, but now I am the lamb yes. that allowed the, the, the judgment of God is going to allow the judgment of God to pass over you. Yeah. And, and I think the reason why this meal is done among the 12, away from the crowds, away from the, the, the view of the Jewish elite that hated Jesus and were wanting him dead, 
the reason it's done away from that situation is because this this um, this claim that Jesus is making mm-hmm. to be the Passover lamb is no small claim. He is he is effectively inserting himself not just in some place in Jewish history. He's inserting himself in the story the the most prominent story in Jewish history, the Exodus as the the Passover lamb as the blood which causes God to pass over Egypt. Mm-hmm. He is putting himself in this central piece of the story and that has to be that that had to have been staggering to hear if you were not one of his disciples and prepared to hear these ideas. I would argue that it's even staggering for his disciples to hear. They're they're looking at this going, wait a second, what is he Mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. What has just happened here? So you're right, it's an important image. We are putting Jesus in the place of, uh, we're putting Jesus in the central place piece of God's great story. Yeah. And that is powerful. This would have been stunning to the, to those, to those men who were mostly Jews. And, and it would have been a, uh, I'm not sure if they would have had a complete, I'm sure that they didn't actually, I'm sure that they didn't have a complete understanding of it right then at the time, but they had to believe what Jesus said. They all, they had uh, they had all of them that were devout Jews would have would have would have eaten a Passover meal prior to this. So when Jesus inserts the words, "This is my body," they knew that that wasn't in. He and that had never been in any Passover prayer exactly. that they ever. Heard, how are heard about. you the bread? Exactly. How are you this? How how does that work? That now you're the sacrifice. Yeah, That's, I mean, if we go even further, he's the bread, he's the wine, he's yes. the lamb, he's the whole yeah. thing. He is the reason. He is the God who passes over the sins previously committed. He is all of this all in one, which is just unbelievable. So verse 20, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So right there, that language, God had made a covenant. God had made many covenants. We have the Noahic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We, you know, we, we have the Mosaic covenant. We have these covenants in, in the Old Testament, but now we have a new covenant in my blood. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine at the table. The hand of the one betraying me is with my hand on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is, again, language that doesn't make sense if Judas doesn't have a part to play in it. Mm -hmm. He can't be held culpable, uh, you know, for something that he has no power over. He is willing to betray Jesus, even though it says the devil had entered into him earlier. So they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. What I find funny about that, believe it or not, is um, why is it that all the apostles went, 
oh man, am I the guy? Am I the guy? Am I, like, am I about to do this? And now some would argue that that is a proof of their view of determinism, that they, they didn't know who God would be using to do this. I don't think that's how we read that. I think the point is they were confused. That yeah. seems yeah. to be the point. Yeah. What, who, what? You would think that, that they would, if they had had any thought of betraying Christ, it would and, have come up earlier. Exactly. You'd have thought, or they would have had a, a, a notion, in the, if it had been in their own mind, they would have said, oh, well, he's talking about me. Yes. I, I, it doesn't seem to be, but, but it, it is, uh, it, it's very notable that, that Jesus, uh, there were some, there's some debate, there are many people that were, believe that Judas was only there for part of the supper, and, uh, and there's scripture that kind of backs that up, but... When when Jesus said that the hand of the of the one betraying me is 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 with mine on the table, he, he was there for that. That's clear. Right. That's clear. Uh, so, but and and I I this was a very interesting uh, verse in twenty two when he says, "For indeed the Son of Man is going, as it has been." De- Determined. Yes, but Jesus woe, was. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So that that word determined in the Greek is is a word that we would pronounce horizo, which we get our word horizon from, which is which basically means the 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 determination, the end of something, the the limit that it can go to. This yeah. is this this was a determination. It was prophesied. That there, that there is going to be a man that betrays Jesus within his group, and and it was, it, but Jesus had said, "Woe to that man! Yeah, woe to him who acts." So, it, it's it's as you've said before, Judas. Uh, this was there was he he is culpable in this. He, he can't ever say, "Oh well, I'm just the." one who was chosen to do this and I had no choice in the matter. He was and and and, and it was fully accountable yes, to God absolutely. for his sin. This uh, this whole the devil made me do it is yeah. just not possible, right? We can't we can't say the devil made me do it. Um yeah, yeah, I think I think that's really great yeah. insight. Um if we rewind just a, just a slight bit to the cup, I think it's I think it's worth uh, noting here too. Um I don't know, they're they're I've gone over these passages so many times as I've read them, as I've taught on them, as we've discussed them, um, as our elders group has discussed them. Uh, the challenge is that sometimes you read you read them and, and you can even overlook key highlights or key points. Notice when he gives the cup, he says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Um, there's a lot of symbolism that's happening in this statement, and it's really important to understand Jewish history and understand prohibitions in Jewish law so that you can understand these disciples would never have heard Jesus saying, this is literally, uh, you you are literally drinking blood right now. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they would have never heard that is because the scripture is quite clear you were forbidden to drink blood, right? right. Leviticus 3, 7, 17, it goes on and on. The idea that this is not a thing that's supposed to be be consumed. Now, the scripture also parallels that and says that the life is in the blood. 
right? So it is no wonder why Jesus's blood is said to bring us life, mm-hmm. give us give us mm-hmm. life, and and that is a necessary component of this whole sacrifice. But um, if we were to if we were to move forward into the book of Acts, just randomly go up going up to Acts ten, where Peter um, Peter we have this vision of Peter and for Peter a vision for Peter I'll get it out there uh, a vision for Peter of all of these unclean animals and God rolls it down on a sheet and says it's clean eat right Peter's protest inside of that this is after the crucifixion of Jesus this is after Pentecost this is much later in the story. And Peter's like, no way, Lord. Mm-hmm. I, I'm never going to do this. Here, here's the point of me bringing that story up. Peter then is protesting what would be unkosher. Mm-hmm. Peter then is protesting. If Peter thought for a second that Jesus was saying, this cup is blood, drink it, we would have text in here that says, not a chance. Yeah. Not a chance. Uh, this just all goes to leading to the idea that these were symbolic pieces, right? The blood that was poured over the doorposts or brushed on the doorposts in in Egypt, this blood covered the hearts of men and women, and God passes over sins previously committed. But nobody in this meeting heard that as anything other than a reference to the Passover lamb's blood in Egypt. That's what they heard. Mm-hmm. They didn't hear, he just told us to drink blood, right? That, that's just that not That is a great point because it is drastically different in, it, in the view of it. The blood that they were prohibited from drinking or eating or drinking, this was a blood that would defile them if they right. did that. They would right. be defiled according to Jewish law. If but 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 the blood that Jesus was talking about was a blood that cleanses, doesn't yes. defile, yes. it cleanses. And and uh, so this is the covenant. This was the new covenant. This was something that changed from the old from the old covenant, where the the blood of animals would cover the sin, and there there was a sacrifice that was made. And Jesus said, "I I have the blood that that is the sacrifice that cleanses from sin." But it's not temporary either. Yeah. It's forever cleansing from sin. And and it is this it's so I'm so glad you brought that up because that is a great point. They would have seen that. It, they would have seen that as a defilement. It, and they would have immediately caught that. You're exactly right, because they knew the law. Absolutely. It's great stuff. Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.